There's a strange report in John's gospel that is not in any of the other gospels. When Jesus is on the cross dying, he utters the words, I thirst. And then after his death, he is pierced in the side with a sword by a soldier and outpours water and blood. Why water? I think that John wants us to see that even in Jesus' death, maybe especially because of Jesus' death, Jesus is the source of living waters that quenches our drought-shaken souls. And in his death, he gives us all of it for our life. Like most everything else in John's gospel, light and dark and shepherd and sheep and word and food and wine and blindness and whatever word, John uses that word as a symbolic way to point to something much greater than the literal understanding of it, especially in his understanding of water. And when Jesus, or excuse me, John uses this language, most of the characters in the stories of John just don't get it. We're supposed to get it as we listen in, but the characters themselves are still stuck on the ground level while Jesus is many floors above in terms of meaning. In this morning's passage, we find the famous watering hole scene where Jesus is found alone with a Samaritan woman, two strikes against her already. She arrives there with a jar to fill, to take back to the city. And he reveals to her that he is the source of living water. And that whoever drinks of this living water will never be thirsty again. John weaves this symbol of water throughout his gospel like a mountain stream meanders through the forest, nourishing all that it touches. May it touch us. Beginning in the fourth chapter of John, selected verses. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard Jesus is making and baptizing more disciples than John, although it was not Jesus himself but his disciples who baptized, he left Judea and started back to Galilee. Judea in the south, Galilee is in the north, and to get to Galilee by a direct route, you have to go to Samaria. And it says he had to go to Samaria, but he didn't. He could have gone around it. So maybe spiritually he felt called to go there as well as it being the shortest route. He had to go to Samaria. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar and near the plot of ground that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. And Jesus tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well, and it was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. Now his disciples, we are told, had gone out to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, 
you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have no bucket, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us the well, and with his sons and his flocks drank from it? Again, she just doesn't get it. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty, for the water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming back here to draw more water. Still, she doesn't quite get it. Jesus said to her, Go now and call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where people must worship is in Jerusalem, according to the Jews. And Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You will worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews we know. But... The hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. In other words, it's not about the place or the denomination. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ, and when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. And Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. Just then his disciples came, and they were astonished that he was speaking with a woman, but no one said, what do you want, or why are you speaking with her? Then the woman left her water jar and went back to the city. She said to the people, Come and see a man who told me everything I have ever done. He cannot be the Messiah, can he? And they all left the city and were on their way to him. And in the 39th verse it reads, Many Samaritans from that city believed in him because of the woman's testimony. She said, He told me everything I have ever done. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and now we know that this is truly the Savior of the world. From the prophet Jeremiah, chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. My people have changed their glory for something that does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, 
and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. This is the word of the Lord. Everyone wants to be seen at the latest watering hole, the newest best bar in town or restaurant, and that's where everybody goes. It is true here, directly across the street at Hawker's Restaurant. You can't get a seat. I sat there on Wednesday afternoon for my second meal there. I got there at quarter to six, thinking I could avoid the crowd. The only seat there was at the bar where I sat and had good food and good service in about 40 minutes in time for me to get back for a meeting. As I sat there looking at the entourage of people I've mentioned, tattoos, young and old, Asian, African-American, Caucasian, all kinds of people, it occurred to me that this is indeed the next great watering hole in Jacksonville. What's the attraction? Everybody's there. That's the attraction. And in being there, too, you must be like everybody else. You are in. After a while, I suspect, it will die down we will soon learn that no place or thing can quench our deepest thirst. And so we will move on, which is what Jeremiah proclaims when he said, They have forsaken me and dug out cisterns for themselves, cracked cisterns that can hold no water. Ultimately, we all leak. Tragically, often, we remain like those who die of thirst in the midst of a monsoon. What we most thirst for, you see, is not a place or a thing or a happening, but a relationship. A relationship with one who knows us so completely, so intimately, so ultimately, all our good and our bad, our secrets, our deepest heart of hearts, our deepest selves, greater than our parents knew us or know us or our Spouses, or our greater even than we know ourselves, our deepest thirst is with a other who knows us so deeply and still loves us unconditionally. Our deepest thirst is for a relationship with God. The only presence is who knows us this way. And as Martin Luther King said, excuse me, Martin Luther said, we are all born with a God-shaped hole in our hearts, which means that until God fills it, the square pegs of our idolatry will never fit into the round hole of our very thirsty souls. This morning's passage is the classic case in point. Day after day, a woman of Samaria... As I said, two strikes against her, takes her empty jar to the well to fill it up. In her case, she did it alone at noon, not with the other women of town when they would come in the morning, in the cool of the morning or in the cool of the evening. She was there in the heat of the day because she had been shunned. We would soon learn it was because of her many marriages. One day when she arrived, she notices a man who is there sitting down, obviously weary, and knowing that she is to avoid men in such circumstances. I mean, she was at the well of Jacob where 
both Rebecca and Rachel had, had come to terms with who they would marry, at that well, the air was always filled with the possibility of meeting someone in new romance. And in Arab culture, when you meet someone of the opposite sex and see each other eye to eye, it is akin to having an intimate date with them. So she lowered her eyes. She noticed him, but lowered her eyes. She noticed his dress, and she noticed his olive skin, and she noticed his Jewish facial features, and she knew that he was a Jew. And she knew that Jews hated Samaritans because they had assimilated, they had interbred with five different conquering nations over their history, and so the Jews called them half-breeds, miscreants, defiled and impure And she makes doubly sure to avoid him sitting there at the well. But Jesus broke all taboo and spoke out to her, asking her for a drink of water. She was stunned. Does he know what he's doing? A Jewish man asking a Samaritan woman for a drink. Without looking up, she asked, How is it that you, a Jew, ask this of me, a woman of Samaria? And Jesus responded the way he always seems to respond in John's gospel, by talking over the heads of those he is in conversation with, leaving them on the ground floor of meaning while he's several flights up. He says, If you know the gift of God and who it is that is asking this of you, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Thinking he means fresh water from flowing streams, that's fresh water from springs, flowing streams, while the water in the well is dead water, they called it. He says, where are you going to get this living water? Are you greater than Jacob who found this well in the first place? And Jesus responds, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink of the water I give them will never be thirsty. For the water I give them will become a spring of water gushing up to eternal life, and still misunderstanding him. I mean, who wouldn't want this kind of water? She asked him to give this water to her so that she would now be able to stop coming back here day after day to fill up her jar. Then Jesus goes to the heart of it, the heart of her. No more double entendre. He tells the woman that he knows the intimate details of her life, Go fetch your husband, he says. And she says, I have no husband. And he says, you're right, you don't. You've had five husbands. And in fact, the, hus- the person you live with now is not even your husband. She is, as they say, slayed by this. He opened her up and saw inside everything about her. He knew her. Yet there was no judgment about it at all. No, shaking his head, no condemnation at all, only a statement of fact. You're right, you've had five husbands, and the man you live with now is not your husband. Jesus knew what they were saying about her in the village. Look, there's that woman. She's had five husbands. Two divorces and three died. 
Somebody needs to look up if that was suspicious. And now she lives with Tom in that trailer park outside of town. That's what they were saying about her. Jesus knew that. But Jesus offers none of this condemnation. No discussion of whether she was widowed or divorced. No discussion of her living with someone out of wedlock. Only a statement of fact. And in that statement from Jesus, without judgment, she stands face to face with a well of grace that was as deep as the ocean and bright as the sun. A well that flows forth with forgiveness, that washes over her with the powers of love and pours into her heart the unmitigated grace of God. He knew her intimately, and she knew it, yet he still asked of her a cup of water. As I said, it stunned her. She takes a step back. We always take a step back when facing some intimacy like that. I mean, after all, we're Presbyterians. And choosing to go to her head like good Presbyterians, she enters into a conversation about theology. They say that God will worship on this mountain in Samaria and or in Jerusalem, but uh, where will God worship? And by the way, when will the Messiah come anyway? And Jesus plays along for a while, telling her that ultimately it makes no difference in the end as long as we worship in spirit and truth. And then he says, after a breath, And as far as this Messiah goes, I am he. I am he. The great I am. The great I am that Moses encountered at the burning bush when he asked God, who are you? And God said, I am who I am. The great I am that is uttered throughout all of the Old Testament of this transcendent, holy other God. Jesus confesses to her, I am. He. And then she knows for sure that this is the ultimate encounter which affirms her being, addresses her deepest needs, quenches her deepest thirst, frees her burdened spirit of condemnation from within and from without, and sends her off as fast as she goes, leaving her water jar at the well to tell the good news. The disciples show up, of course, and just like you would expect, they don't get it either. Why is Jesus talking to this half-breed of a woman? But of course, they will get it later. It takes us a while to figure out that Jesus doesn't really care about these things that get in our way. He doesn't care about our past lives. He does compassionately and mercifully, but not in the sense that it stops him from addressing us with love. He doesn't care about our race or our gender or sexuality, our mistakes or regrets or secrets. All he cares about is filling us up with the most unbearable love of God we can imagine. And he told her everything she had ever done, and it didn't matter. All that mattered was this unquenchable thirst in her and this stream of living waters that he had to fill her with, pouring it into her heart. I love the fact that she 
John says she leaves the jar at the well and goes off to tell everyone in town what she had found, that he knew her, everything about her. And it reminds me of that, that thing that we all carry around, that empty vessel, that jar, that knapsack that we're always trying to fill up with stuff. And if, it's, if we're not filling it up, it's already filled up with our own condemnations and self-judgments and ego shots and all the other stuff that we carry around. She doesn't need it anymore. She just leaves it at the well. The story opens us to this moment, this experience that we all thirst for. The instance when the ground pulls out from under us and we are standing face to face with the real ground of our being that reveals to us who we are, that we are known at our deepest parts and even still accepted and loved and embraced. This is the power of God and Jesus Christ and the only source of the waters that will quench our deepest thirst. And when it comes, it flows like an endless stream. I have a good friend who, in seminary, was going to a counselor every week. A man who was a seminary professor as well as counselor, a man that my friend looked up to as his mentor, And every week, my friend would spill his guts, pour his heart out to the counselor, tell him everything there was to know, all his secrets, everything, week after week. And the counselor would bring to this friend a sense of normalcy that, I hear you, I hear you, God loves you, God forgives you, God loves you. And then at the end of all of this counseling of three years of seminary, it's time to say goodbye to end the counseling as my friend graduates. And so the last day, they they had this real powerful time of, of sharing, of appreciation, and so forth. And as my friend got up to head out the door for the last time, the counselor said, Oh, Rush, one more thing I want to tell you. And Rush turned around and looked at him, and the counselor said, I'm a lot more messed up than you are. It was a divine act of love and, count and kindness that this counselor gave Rush humbling himself so that Rush would not think he was inordinately weird. Don't you see that this is what Jesus' whole life is about? He humbles himself to whatever extent is necessary, asking for a cup of water from this five times married Samaritan woman so that she may discover that he knows her. Later at the Last Supper, surrounded by his disciples, even Judas, knowing that they would all betray him in the end, he grabs a bowl from the table and fills it up with the living waters and puts a towel around himself and kneels at the disciples' feet and begins to wash them. The great, holy, transcendent I Am down there on his knees in this loving act of service and intimate humility. He humbles himself completely on the cross where he is defiled, shamed, and spit on solely for the world to know one thing, that God knows us completely and loves us unconditionally. 
That's why it's not just blood that gushes out of that spear wound, but the living waters of God's grace. Last Wednesday night, our new officers, trustees, deacons, and elders stood before the session and shared their own faith stories. And in each case, the story was similar. That is that they, we have experienced this moment when God has known us this intimately. And in that moment, we also experience God's grace and love. It was deeply moving and emotional for all of us, but there There was also a clear sense in every single one of those giving their faith journey that not only had they received these living waters, but in receiving them that they wanted to give them back, that to whom much is given, much is required. As we ordain and install our new officers this morning, let us hold ourselves accountable to Jesus' words from John. After he had knelt at their feet and washed them all, he said to them this, I give you a new commandment, that you love others as I have loved you. Of all the vows that we take in our ordination or in our baptism, there is no greater vow than this, than through the living waters of Jesus Christ, we will strive to love others as he has loved us. And being washed over by these gracious waters, we might even be able to do it from time to time. And when we do, we at Riverside here will continue to be a moving tributary of the living waters from God's incredible well of grace. So I invite those who have been called by you to be of service to come forward to be commissioned Chris Eirich as as trustee for the class of 2016, for deacons Merle Lear, Ashley Knight, Debbie Grisnick, Jane Pomar, Ken Mixon, and Judy Robertson. Margot Althuis is out of town, and Cena Corbett is recovering from an illness. And from the session... Joe Eberly, Sherrick Gilbert, Darlene Hampton, and Ed Pratt Daniels. Kathy Para is out of town, and Kay Harding is as well. Oh, I'm sorry, Leah McNeil. You have been so instructed. Do you trust in Jesus Christ, your Savior, acknowledge him Lord of all and head of the church, and through him believe in one God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Please say, I do. You accept the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments to be by the Holy Spirit, the unique and authoritative witness to Jesus Christ in the church universal and God's word to you? If so, say, I do. Do you sincerely receive and adopt the essential tenets of the Reformed faith as expressed in the confessions of our church as authentic and reliable expositions of what Scripture leads us to believe and do? And will you be instructed and led by those confessions as you lead the people of God? Do you? 
Will you fulfill your office in obedience to Jesus Christ under the authority of Scripture and be continually guided by our confessions? Say, I will. Will you be governed by our church's polity and will you abide by its discipline? Will you be a friend among your colleagues in ministry, working with them, subject to the ordering of God's word and spirit? Please say, I will. Will you in your own life seek to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, love your neighbors, and work for the reconciliation of the world? Will you? Do you promise to further the peace, unity, and purity of the church? Do you? Will you seek to serve the people with an energy, intelligence, imagination, and love? Will you? For elders, will you be a faithful elder watching over the people, providing for their worship, nurture, and service? Will you share in government and discipline, serving in governing bodies of the church? And in your ministry, will you try to show the love, forgiveness, and justice of Jesus Christ? If so, say, I will. For trustee, will you be a faithful trustee? Being true to the endowments and the responsibilities of such trustee, serving Jesus Christ with all love, will you? For deacons, will you be a faithful deacon, teaching charity, urging concern, and directing the people's help to the friendless and those in need? And in your ministry, will you try to show the love, forgiveness, and justice of Jesus Christ? If so, say, I will. Do we, the members of Riverside Presbyterian Church, accept these elders, trustees, and deacons, chosen by God through the voice of this congregation to lead us in the way of Jesus Christ? If so, say we do. Do we agree to encourage them to respect their decisions and to follow as they guide us, serving Jesus Christ, who alone is head of the church? Please say we do. I invite all who have been ordained as an elder in the Presbyterian Church to come forward and lay hands on our deacons and elders who are to be ordained. If you are able, please kneel. If not, we will all lay our hands on you. And I invite Bill Hoff to come forward with the prayer and charge. God, we give you thanks for your church, for your covenant relationship with all of us, for calling us into community, for giving all of us gifts to serve, for giving particular calling, vocation, gifts to these men and women. We ask that you bless them, protect them, guide them, encourage them in their service. May we all work together, putting your kingdom first, letting the waters of your love wash over and through us and through and into our community where we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You are now elders and deacons of the church and trustees of the church of Jesus Christ. And for this congregation, whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Amen. Blessings. Blessings.